Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. This is Eric Rochow, your guest host. Root Simple, the podcast, is the companion audio show to the RootSimple.com blog. Uh, it's the home of Eric and Kelly, and I am a guest host. I don't know if you have heard yet, but Kelly had to have emergency open-heart surgery. She's recuperating. She's doing very well. And like my, like a lot of you, I was thinking, what could I do to help Eric and Kelly I'm in the East Coast, they're on the West Coast, so I couldn't really go over there and, you know, bring them a casserole or something. So I said to Eric, email me the intro and outro music of your podcast, and I will do your podcast while you guys are recuperating. Uh, Eric is a full-time caretaker right now for Kelly. Kelly is in a recliner, watching lots of Netflix, from what I understand. She just wrote a post on their site, a little bit about her ordeal and her recovery, and it just gives you pause to be appreciative of modern medicine, I'll tell you that. For you guys who are thinking, what can I do to help Kelly? I have a suggestion. Maybe you would consider becoming a blood donor in your local area. This is kind of me getting up on my milk crate here, but I am a blood donor. I give blood about four times a year, and it's they can't make blood. I mean, the, the, the tech world, the biotech world has not made blood yet. They still need it from us and our bodies. And people like Kelly, who walk into the emergency room saying, I have a numbness in my leg, and an hour later are in an operating room, uh, they need your blood. It has to be on hand when it's needed. And right now, I just got an email from the Red Cross saying, uh, Eric, could you make an appointment? We're running low on blood. Please come in. And so I did. I made an appointment. It is, I do not like needles. Well, like when the doctor gives me a shot, I can't look. When they draw blood, I can't look. I look the other way. And I still give blood. It's not painful. There's a, there's a bit of a pinch uh, when they're getting ready to take your blood. And they do a little pinprick on your finger to check your oxygen level. But they're just, it, they're really professional and it. it works really well. My only suggestions, are, well, I have two suggestions for you. Hydrate a lot. Schedule your appointment two or three days in advance and drink lots more water than you usually do. Cut back on your caffeine. And the second one is caffeine. Uh, Don't drink any caffeine the day you're going to give blood because it will constrict your blood vessels and just make it more difficult for you. And the, I think they're called phlebotomists. They're really professional. They're really great at it. The cool part is you get to have snacks afterward. And I don't know if you know me, but I love snacks. So our guest today is a friend of mine from a nearby town uh, that I know, Babs Perkins. She's a photographer and writer in Northwest Connecticut. And she has what I call the typical creative person's circuitous route to her career, what she's doing now, which is photographing and documenting disappearing foods in the Balkans. Um, She has a background in working at a law firm, working at a design firm, uh, being a book editor, Uh, and also having a degree in hospitality care and management. Uh, Babs will correct me on this, I'm sure. But anyway, right now she is spending, I'd say, about a third of her time in Bosnia and the surrounding areas documenting disappearing foods, notably cheese. And she gives a really great talk. I've been to two talks she's given in the nearby area here at the libraries, and it's like a TED Talk. Um, it isn't that typical PowerPoint with person just reading from a script. She's very engaging. She's a great storyteller. If you are thinking about wanting to have an interesting person come talk to your group, consider hiring 
Babs as a guest speaker. Her information is at her site, babsperkins.com. But anyway, let's go to my talk with Babs, and I will see you at the other end of the show. Ready? Here we go. So hello, Babs. Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, I already explained to everyone I am the guest host, but I'm going to do my best Eric Knudsen impersonation here. <laughs> okay. But uh, well, everyone knows that Babs well. and I have a, we have a background together, and we've both been to the countries you're talking about. And my first question to you is, is what, where was the light bulb moment where you decided to travel to the Balkans and photograph uh, food and its and culture and people? Well, the sort of the for this particular project, the the light bulb moment came in 2012 when I was actually already in the region. I was in Sarajevo um, working on a different project. Um, and the, I spent four months in the fall of 2012 uh, traveling throughout the region. Um, most of that was just a the backpacking, uh, you know, the semester abroad backpacking gap year thing that I never did uh, when I graduated from high school. And so I, I decided to do it for the for the birthday of that year. And I had I was working on this other um, tourism project, and I read this article, and I believe it was in the Guardian, about cheeses going extinct in France. And I thought, wow, France, they they care about cheese, they have a gastronomic culture and a heritage and money, and um, and then there I was in in Bosnia and had at that point traveled in. Croatia and Serbia, uh, and I would then go on to travel in Macedonia and Bulgaria and a few other countries. But I, I had this moment of wow! If 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 these if cheeses can go extinct, and the number they quoted then was thirty che- fifty cheeses in the last thirty years, if it happens there in France, then what happens to places like Bosnia? What happens to places that are um, that are developed enough to not be considered uh, rightly or wrongly third world, but definitely not benefiting from the the economies of, of Western Europe. And this is was also uh, before Croatia joined the EU, and so I was reading a little bit about the impact uh, that Croatia joining the EU would have on on the region from a hospitality and tourism standpoint, and I saw how it would... Um, it could possibly intersect uh, with Bosnia. And, and this, Croatia and Bosnia share a common border. They do. They they are all part, uh, for the, the listeners not overly familiar with that portion of Europe, it's on the eastern side of the Adriatic, just across from Italy, and it was all part of the former Yugoslavia. Um, and there's a large, Croatia runs along the coast. Bosnia has this little teeny section of coast, uh, but they share several hundred miles of, of, of border, uh, and, and their economies have been tied for the last several hundred years, you know, Yugoslav times, Ottoman Empire before that, Habsburgs, there's all sorts of political and um, trade interaction, and so the, the economies were definitely tied, and with Croatia joining the EU, which then went and happened in 2013, um, so I, th- there was, there was going to be an issue because Bosnia isn't up to the sanitation and hygiene guidelines necessary for EU 
um, participation, if not inclusion, but at least participation. And so all of these things, uh, uh, as I read this one article in The Guardian and then did some more research, I had this, uh-oh, kind of moment. This doesn't look good. Um, and and how what what can I do? I want to come back to this region. I want to spend more time in this region. How does that intersect with what I do, which is I'm a writer and a photographer. Uh, I went to culinary school, and my first degree was in hospitality and tourism. And so I had this this strange intersection of interests, and how could I get back to this region and engage all of the parts of me? Uh, and so I I created this project. Uh, to allow me to uh, both simply document, simply record something that is in fact disappearing and hoping to create a record of some sort so that it's for just for posterity's sake. But if in the process of that project, I can draw attention to the issue of, of cheeses going extinct, of foods going extinct, of the importance of biodiversity, I thought, oh, all the better. And it just so happened that those things have have come to the fore in the last couple of years. Anyway, those food and sustainability, food security issues are all uh, hot topics. Um, and so I thought, what a better way to talk about these things than talk about them in this region, because then it makes people, you know, gives people the opportunity to, to look at things outside their own environment and see how it relates. But also it's a great way to talk about a region that few people, uh, except for well, obviously you, a uh, few people go. Um, and since it's a place that is fractious at best, um, it's a way to talk about issues in that region uh, without getting super political. So there's, you know, I can go on, but yeah. stop me, cut me off when you're, you know, when, uh, when you want to move on. Cause I no, can you're the perfect guest. Cause you, I, I'm not good at asking questions, okay. but what I do like about your work is there's a quiet power there. I mean, you're not guilting us. You're not hitting us over with a baseball bat about these cheeses disappearing. You're, you're documenting it and you're raising awareness and people like me who would have never thought about this unless I went to your talk at the library, you know? Uh-huh. And then I'm, so now I'm thinking, oh, wow, these are disappearing. I wonder if there are cheeses disappearing in Vermont or something. And it also brings to mind for me the the beauty and also the downside of something like the European Union, where I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but it sounds like the Bosnian cheese can't be sold in Croatia because they mix it in a wooden bowl. And basically, there's. And there's there's examples of this all over the EU, where various countries and hygiene guidelines are 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 set up to, for for cleanliness, but that isn't cheese. And yes, you're you're basically right. It's that is a simplification, but it is in fact that is the essence of the truth. And thank you for your your kind words about the about my work, because I I do feel like the story itself speaks in volumes and we all have a lot to think about. I was listening to this a lecture uh, a couple of weeks ago about food and they were talking about um, the the cup of, of concern that this we all have this we all have a certain capacity for care and for for issues that we care about. And in order to um, in order to motivate people to action, you either have to displace something that already exists or you have to tie 
whatever your own pet project is to something that people already care about. And I think that is, that's really my, because I am a curious person and I find that if I look at, if there's something that's interesting to me, then there's things that are parallel and it does, they don't have to compete with, with each other for time or for resources. And if I can convey a story that's interesting in its own right, and then, and it does get people thinking, oh, well, how does that apply here? What is that? What else does that mean? How can I extrapolate from that person's idea and, and find meaning for myself? I find that that's the, that to be an effective way to engage community because we're already, we're all, we're all doing the best we can and yeah. we all have, there are certain things because of my experience that are going to strike a chord with me. And there's certain things that are going to strike a chord with you and mine's not better than yours, but it's that, you know, all together we make the orchestra kind of thing. And so by, by talking about Bosnia, by talking about Serbia or Croatia, people think that there's the people that are engaged by travel but not necessarily food. And they may then think about food when they travel. And then there's the people that are totally motivated by food, but wouldn't have gone to Bosnia. And they think, Oh, maybe I'll go there. And I, I guess it's that the finding that the mentality that there's, there may not be a lot of resources, but they don't need to compete. Um, if, if, if we see how to put this that doesn't sound super corny. That's one of the things I end up, I find myself sounding rather corny because I feel uh-huh. like we can all, if we all just get along, but it, it does, it seems to work. And that's the thing that I've experienced in the region is the places that are succeeding, even fractionally so, or the ones that have realized um, cooperatives work. The one farmer is having, has a hard time monetizing um, their own crop, but if they're working together, they tend to um, they tend to help each other and they tend to do better off. When you take that to the nth degree and you have you know super agro industrialized farming and agribusiness, then you've you've sort of gone over the edge. And I think the same thing can be said for um, for the sanitation and hygiene guidelines. Yes, there is a need for for cleanliness. Yes, there is a need for standardization so that when you go to buy Gruyere, you're actually getting Gruyere and, you know, not something that's, you know, not Parmesan or not Brie. <laughs> There's, you can have you can have regulation and standardization. But it has but, to be reasonable. But it, it does. And but then who decides what's reasonable? And that's the thing with cheese, because it is dealing with bacteria and it is dealing with these, you know, ostensibly the spoilage of a dairy product, which can be, um, it can get toxic, but if it's done correctly, which in most of these cases, it's been done for hundreds or 200 or 500 or 800 years, the, those people's livelihoods are dependent upon creating a product that is, um, that is, is edible, that is safe because, you know, where we don't, you know, we don't think about it. We go to the grocery store. There's the the expectation of sanitation. But if you go to the little, uh, the green market, and you buy something that's bad, you're going to remember. You're not going back there again, and that's going to be a direct economic impact on that small farmer. And big companies don't seem to suffer from product recalls the way little ones do. So the little ones are far more motivated to make sure that what they're doing is of the best quality. And that's, you know, that's sort of where the, you know, who decides what 
what what best practices are and and what is reasonable and by um, looking at the context of you know are we talking about a multinational dairy concern that's that's doing ultra high pasteurized milk or are we talking about a woman with 12 cows and their context can really help and I think we get things so far out of context in terms of what's necessary or what's acceptable that we lose all sense of reality for um, for how to proceed and then we box ourselves into a corner uh, in terms of what we quote unquote have to do or you must do and that right, is the rules and regulations the other oh. thing which um, I've, I already have in my head, but the, our listeners don't, is that a lot of the cheese that these Bosnians are making, they usually would sell across the border to Croatia. And because Croatia is in the UE now, they can't sell it over there. And so they're taking an economic hit. So they, they're not making as much of the cheese or they're not making the cheese anymore at all. Is that correct? That is that is true. You So the sort of the, the seed, um, so from the light bulb came... Uh, of of doing this project came some research and I, I I spent about a year and a half researching and emailing and writing and calling and contacting people in the region to try to get an understanding of of what products are being produced and what has what's happened what the landscape there was like and I I there's a lot of misinformation there's a lot of of ideas about what what is what is happening versus you know, there's ideas about what's happening versus what's actually happening. And so I had to sort out a number of those things. But one of the cheeses that is of the highest concern is this cheese um, uh, called, the words in, in the local language in Bosnia and Serbia and Croatian um, is, for cheese is sir, uh, S-I-R. And there's this cheese called siris mieha, which is, uh, translates to sack cheese. And it is cheese... Um, that is cured or aged in a uh, sheepskin sack. That sheepskin sack is the the sheep is um, dispatched in a particular way, and then the the skin is handled in a particular way so as to maintain the balloon quality of the skin. And um, so it's a it's a very old, basically a shepherd's cheese. And this one particular, it's a it's sort of a mountain region shepherd's cheese, and. They, in most of the, through the Yugoslav days, um, a, a majority of Bosnia's dairy exports went to Croatia. Bosnia had the land for grazing, whereas Croatia didn't have the same, you know, it's their seaside and much more mountainous without the pastures. And so Bosnia had the, the green grazing lands. And so there was this this relationship between the two entities. And... This one particular cheese, the Sierra's Mieha, it, it all of the best restaurants along the along the coast had this uh, this cheese. And then in 2013, when uh, when Croatia joined the EU, uh, it was no longer legal for Bosnia to export for the producers in Bosnia to export this cheese. And it is labor intensive. It is not. Um, it takes a you know a couple of years to between one and two years to age properly and because it was historically made mostly with sheep milk and sheep don't produce as much milk as cows and from the particular kind of sheep, all of these things affected the, the volume of cheese production. But then once those, those you know, 50 to 60 kilo sacks of cheese could no longer be exported to the place where, they're not, where it's not made, 
because it's now illegal, um, the producers, they couldn't maintain their, they can't maintain their um, their business model because you can only sell so much of it so much of it in your little local area yep. because most everybody will make their own one sack for their own year so they don't need to buy it um, and it was the this larger cooperatives that were were gearing up to be able to produce um, larger numbers of it for export but because the because they can't export it, these the producers are are going out of business. And if something doesn't happen in the next, I would say two years, eighteen months, two years, two and a half years, the major producers, the the people that can produce it on a commercial level, if not you know not factory, but on a commercial level, will um, if if there's not a market found for them for the cheese outside of Bosnia, um, or the illegal. Um, uh, cheese smuggling um, to Italy and Croatia, there they will cease to it'll, you know it will cease to exist in commercial production, and that's one of the things that um, that causes cheese to to go extinct. There we back at the beginning, I mentioned that I'd read this article about cheeses going extinct, and the listeners might be interested to know why that happens. Cheeses go extinct for a couple of reasons: the land is no longer being maintained for agriculture. Um, the breed line of animal that produces the milk, be it a cow or a goat or a sheep, uh, ceases to exist. Um, and then there's the, the, the die off, the, the brain drain, the knowledge base dies out. And people don't really understand that traditional cheeses are terroir specific, sort of the way wine is terroir specific. You can, you know, you can grow a Pinot grape, Pinot Noir grape in Oregon or California or chili and it's going to taste different because of what's in the soil and cheese is very much the same way because the animal grazes in a particular place uh, eats a particular diet of whatever plants are in the the area Um, the water has a particular mineral balance and that all affects the milk which then affects the cheese and so if you don't maintain the pasture lands uh, consistently then the 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 makeup of the flora changes and the milk product is totally different and so you you don't have the same cheese so if these cheese producers as i was saying stop uh, grazing as many sheep uh, then the land changes the the makeup of the land changes and no longer can the cheese be made in the traditional way because the the place that it was made ostensibly ceases to exist So, you know, this it gets to be sort of um, it's this multi it's a it's a, a, a call it a constellation of issues, and there's really no clear way to uh, fix it or address it other than um, awareness and consumption. Uh, food's going extinct. Fortunately, it's the one thing that you want to consume more of it to save it. Um, unlike animals like. Uh, you know, the spotted owl, if we want to save the owl, you don't go shoot and eat the owl. But if yeah. you want to save cheese, you want to eat more cheese. <laughs> so right. now that we've gone down this path of, of what's happening with the cheese, <laughs> I'm really curious is I've been to this, the the lands that you have been to. And, mm-hmm. you you know, you're basically just this American with a big camera walking down <laughs> the street and going, hi, I'm going to document your cheese. It, that doesn't work. <laughs> Yeah, it does sound it sounds rather absurd in 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 the abstract and the fact is it 
it all feels rather abstract to me, uh, feels rather, excuse me, it feels rather absurd to me at times because I am, um, I, uh, uh, had a, I'm a, an interesting ambassador for this because it was, it's not something that I thought I would, you know, it's not something that was necessarily of interest to me uh, in, I would have, I would not have seen myself doing this, but I think my background in food and my background in tourism, uh, I have found unlikely bedfellows, I guess. And so, like I said, I started with a lot of research and lots of reaching out for communication, contacts, networking things. And, and to be honest, it was really disappointing and frustrating because in over a year of, of research, I had zero uh, callbacks. I had zero uh, people reach out or follow up with, with my request for information. Didn't you like this? The at the catalyst of cooking up these people came with a cab drive. Was it a cab driver? There was uh, there was one of the well. That's a yes. One of the good good memory. One of the 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 once I got to the region and I started I I made my first couple of connections in the region and went on my fir- after the first trip. Um, I got. I figured out what works in the region, and the the typically American or Western way of emailing an introduction or asking for someone to introduce you doesn't work. And I really needed to be I needed to be on the ground. And I I fortunately um, after a year this I got a a, a a random email from a woman who was involved with Slow Food International in the region. And she followed up with me, and then she connected me with some folks. But then once I was in Sarajevo, uh, I was, a, in fact, in a cab with the, with a husband and wife uh, friend of mine, friends of mine. Um, she's American. He's uh, Bosnian. And we were, um, we were driving to something. And the uh, Irfan, the, the, the guy, at, was talking to the, the cab driver and explaining my project and just sort of chatting about who I was. And so he turns back and he says to me, hey, have you been to see the nomadic herders yet, the shepherds yet? And I said, no, I've been trying to find a, a connection up there for almost a year, but um, nobody's gotten back to me. And so he turns back, Yerfo turns back around and talks to the cab driver for another 30 seconds or th- so. There's some, I hear my name, I hear some keywords that I'm familiar with. Um, I'm following a little bit of what they're saying, but they're speaking so quickly, it's it's hard to keep up. And then after about a minute, Irfo turns back around and he says, um, he'll come by the, the hostel tomorrow uh, and leave you a, a telephone number of somebody you can call. A friend of his from high school is a shepherd near Sansky Most and um, and uh, and we're sure that he will he will help you. And so true to form the next day, uh, the cab driver comes by the hostel where uh, I was staying and uh, gives me a phone number. And so I ask my friend who works at the hostel to um, if she would call and see if she could arra- you know, help me arrange to meet this guy. And the guy says, so Adina, my friend, calls and, and says, oh, so I have this American here and, and she would like to come and, and, and make pictures of you and talk to you. And 
Um, the guy says, okay, fine. When, when will she be here? Well, she's, she should be up there next Tuesday or whatever. He said, okay, I'll meet her at the, um, at the, at the coffee shop, at the gas station, at the edge of town at 10 o'clock. So (laughs) the next week I, with my interpreter, uh, go to the gas station at the edge of town. No other, uh, there's only only one gas station there. Uh, that's, that's what I hope. I'm not sure of this. (laughs) And so I, um, I literally just with, uh, with my interpreter, we show up at the, um, at the gas station and, and so my interpreter walks in and, and, uh, starts going around to the various, um, men, you know, 30 something, 40 something men in the room. Um, are you, uh, and I forget the gentleman's, uh, Safir, are you Safir? No, I can't, that's not his name. I can't remember his name. Um, are you, are you, no, no, no. And finally this guy walks in and he says, are you looking for me? And my interpreter says, uh, yes, I, I have, uh, I have Babs, the, um, the American journalist here. Uh, and he says, okay, come over here. So he's there with a friend and we figure it's probably cause he wasn't sure, um, of what the, of what the, what the deal was. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure as most of the cases, when I would have, a um, an interview, people were convinced I was a spy, and my response would be, well, if I was a spy, would I really be concerned with the how much milk your cows produce and, and things like that? And so we sat there in the gas station, and we talked for about, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half. And the first hour, the guy was absolutely stone cold, very matter-of-fact answers and very suspect. And after I'm asking him, because at this point I've done dozens of interviews. I've had this is my third trip to the region, and and so I um, I I'm asking what I hope are um, intelligent questions. And finally, after an hour, he totally relaxes, and then we then we can tell. Then his friend is like, "Okay, I'm leaving. I'll see you later." And we sat there and chatted, and then he invited me back to his house, me and my interpreter and I back to his house to meet. Um, well, he actually doesn't live there because he's in a different place every night with the sheep. Right. But where his wife lives, um, and where their cheese processing, uh, their cheese room is. And so I went and had lunch and met the son and the daughter. And then I went with them. I followed him out to the, to the, the particular um, pasture where the sheep were going to be um, kept for the night, and. I got to experience sort of a day in the in the life of a nomadic shepherd, uh, and all so, from riding in a cab. All from riding in a cab. It, there was a lot of stories, like um, a passing mention of, "Oh, do you know someone who does X?" And no, no, I don't. But if you're going to talk to me, you have to go talk to that guy. And that's basically how I find my um, contacts at this point is I will roll into a town with my interpreter and go, because these most every one of these towns has a, a central green market, uh, a farmer's market, that um, is there every day. Now, there's the big market days, Saturday, Wednesday, some places it's Tuesday, but there's there are usually sellers every single day, and I will go with my interpreter, and I will ask every single person in the market that sells cheese may I come to your, uh, is this cheese that you make? Yes. May I come and photograph? And at first it was 
I got a lot of no's, but because I have now showed up um, time and time again, uh, four trips in the last two years alone, totaling over six months of almost uh, 10 months of time at this point. Yeah. Um, the, I'm now, like I walked this past trip, I was there September and October, and I walked into a party in Sarajevo, and I was talking to this this woman, and she said, oh, you're the, the, the American cheese person. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, I, I guess I've, I've, I guess I've arrived if, if I'm now being, uh, identified as the American cheese woman. So uh, I'm not sure how I feel about being the American cheese woman. I would rather it be Bosnian cheese, but you know, you got to take it where you can get it. Right. But I, I can see that, uh, suspicion thing because there were two things kind of backstories here. First of all, Yugoslavia was a non-aligned communist country. Correct. Um, which had, you know, many enemies. Well, there's actually three things. And then the Balkans in general is a very tribal place with slights between different tribes going back thousands of years. Um, and then there was a recent war where the Bosnians were at war with their neighbors. So they do have kind of a wall to people who all of a sudden just show up and say, hey, I want to talk to you. Yeah, and that's – and I was – I was aware of that, and I, because I've traveled fairly extensively anyway, I, that those are the things that you you that one pays it one, hopefully one pays attention to, um, and one of the things that I found very interesting um, was the so my my mother's father was Slovak, and I grew up with, without even knowing this, some a lot of traditions that are similar between the tribes. You mentioned that it's very tribal, and it and it, it very much is. Uh, but there is some consistency to the customs and traditions. Yep. And we may do it one way, and you may do it another way, but we're still doing the same thing. And uh, in showing up again and again and again, and understanding and respecting the the way things are and not coming in and telling people not trying to change or tell people they're doing it wrong but really coming in and getting the lay of the land and it was not being a typical american in a, well yes exactly that's I, I was trying to nicely uh not say that but yeah you're absolutely right to not be the typical um not be your typical American and come in and listen. And in doing all that research, I was able to ask questions that, that expressed my, my deep interest, um, in, in what was going on. And I got, it's, it's gotten to the point now where when I go and sit with these, uh, it's a mix of men and women, but a lot of the the heavy labor done by the men and I have, you know, and I'm, I will eat whatever's put on the table. Most of which I probably wouldn't eat here. Um, you know, bacon there is cured pig, but it's then not fried. Like we fry our bacon. They don't fry their bacon. They just eat it cured. So it would be like me going and just eating uncooked bacon here. People would, that's disgusting. And it kind of is, but, in the context of being at the table with those people in the midst of their life, there is no difference in who we are. We're all, we all eat, you know, yeah. two or three meals a day. Um, there's a lot of, th- there's a lot of differences in people, but the fact of the matter is we all eat. 
and we all have to we all have some connection to food whether we eat to live or live to eat we all eat and by honoring that um i think i was able to allay some of the suspicions and by being willing to have rakia the the local brandy or eau de vie like sit and have whatever they put on the table and be willing to try it and not make a face and not be like, um, excuse me, do you have decaf coffee? Yeah. Um, and being interested, just the, just the simple interest uh, was enough to start to thaw. And then the consistency was enough to, you know, now, now I have friends in the region and I, there's this one particular town, Trebinje, which is in the south of Herzegovina, Bosnia and Herzegovina, across the line from Dubrovnik, Croatia. And I'll walk through the market and these ladies that were, that would scowl at me and absolutely refused to let me take their picture two years ago, um, now wave and smile and poke at each other. And, and, and I hear them saying, Oh, the American, the Americanka, the Americans here, the Americans here. <laughs> and, and it's, it as different as we can be, it goes to show that if you're willing to slow down and listen, um, we can find similarities. Now they definitely, there's a lot of, a lot of the folks that I've met, they want me to fix the problem for them. They want me to, um, find them someone to uh, sell their cheese or find someone to do things. And I could be annoyed and think, oh, who am I? I? That's not my job. I can't do that for you. But they're coming from a, most of these people are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, post-communist, where the government did do everything and they don't have the frame of reference. They don't have the context yeah. to go be entrepreneurial. That wasn't allowed. And so how do I bridge my knowledge base and their knowledge base and help them without um, without sort of leaving the, the tenant of my project behind and, and not setting them up for disappointment? Because people will – I have found that they – a number of the folks were uh, – the fact that I, I couldn't – just call somebody and get them a way to sell their cheese here. People were disappointed, but then other folks understood. And, and I, I'm listening to myself saying they, and I don't want it to sound like I'm, they're different than me. I don't, I don't want it to have that context because I really feel, um, it's us because if, regardless of whether it's happening in Bosnia and Croatia or it's happening, three towns over people are just looking to make a living and they're looking to, to produce, to, to, to get through the day. And it's, it's this, you know, there is this exoticness of this far away place, maybe not as exotic for some as, you know, Thailand or India, but there is, I was showing photographs of the, some salt works that I photographed and things have been done there um, the same way for, almost 2000 years and there it isn't it doesn't have to be rocket science it doesn't have to be highly mechanized it doesn't have to be complicated it just it it just has to be known and and then um you know the awareness of it can can help it succeed i don't know well speaking of it being known there are two things Uh, i want to touch on while we finish up is that you can actually did you say right that we could buy cheese on Amazon from Bosnia? Uh, not from Bosnia at this point, not yet. Okay. Um, but Croatia, yes. There's a um, 
There's a particular cheese uh, called Pashki Seer, um, which is the the cheese from the from Pag, the island um, in the Adriatic off the coast of Croatia. Um, I think it's what P A S H K I Seer um, or cheese, and it is very similar to a Manchego. And the company that has it, I think it's iGourmet is the company that has it. Um, they don't always have it in stock, but because it's a seasonal thing and they'll get in a shipment and, and send it out. But having had the cheese, the Pashki Seer in Croatia on the island of Pag and then having actually had it, I wanted to test to see what it was like, um, the stuff that they got from Amazon. And it is, in fact, it's, it's produced, it's just, it's, um, is it as good as the stuff in Croatia? It's not going to be the same as having it. It's like going to the vineyard to have the wine. Is it, yeah. <laughs> you know, not exactly the same, but it's, it's really, it's pretty darn close. And, and the other, the other thing is, is that you can, it is fairly easy for Americans to travel there and it's a beautiful place. Oh, it's, it's, it is very easy to travel there. It is stunningly beautiful, beautiful. It is not expensive. Um, and we've spent a lot of time talking about cheese, but I would also mention that the wines from the region, both um, at, well, the whole region, Slovenia makes wine, Bosnia, Croatia, all former Yugoslavia all makes wine. Um, the Vranitz grape, the V-R-A-N-A-C grape, which some listeners may be familiar with, actually comes from Montenegro. I went to the village where the earliest mention of that grape comes from about a thousand years ago. And um, it's easy, it's really easy There's uh, to fly into either Sarajevo or Belgrade. Um, car rentals are inexpensive. It is a heart-wrenchingly beautiful region. Um, everything from the, the beaches of, of Montenegro and Croatia to the uh, Alpine mountains, Olympic skiing around Sarajevo, uh, some of the most beautiful undammed rivers uh, in, I would say in the world, but you know, there's some people that might argue that, but the, the, the flora, the fauna, the, you know, you walk in a meadow and there's 11 kinds of wild oregano and sage and rosemary and lavender and mandarins and kiwi and pomegranate in every backyard. And it really just feels um, magic. And people are friendly. While they may be suspect of somebody like me coming in to do work, people are, in fact, friendly. And they're more, they're as curious about you as you are of them. And it's not that weird, like, stare down, uh, what are you doing here kind of feeling that you might, that some people might be expecting. There's just a little, um, there's just a little reticence, I guess. Um, and more so in Bosnia, less so in, in Serbia. Um, but it is, it's easy to get to. It's not expensive. People think, you know, one of the questions I get is, aren't they, aren't they at war? Well, the, no, not anymore. Um, it is safe to travel there. Both, um, both, well, I, I mean, I can, having been all around the region, you can't go wrong in any particular Whichever direction you go, you can't go wrong uh, in terms of uh, the, the land, the topography. Um, 
the the ver anything that you're looking for in a you know in a vacation you can probably find in the region for uh, a reasonably <laughs> reasonably priced vacation. It's a great place. And then in the middle of nowhere along a highway will be this giant cement sculpture. <laughs> yes, this is true. There's the the Spomanik, the monuments. Um, and some of the listeners may have seen them uh, crack to one of the, you know, um, oddities. Atlas Obscura has has talked about these various monuments that were created as a, um, they were commissioned, uh, Tito commissioned the creation of these huge sculptures to uh, monumentalize, to commemorate the people who died fighting fascism. And they are, some are metal, but most of them are, um, are these cement pieces. They're brutalist architectural monuments, uh, brutalist as in at the style. Yeah, the, well, it's it's the it's actually beton brut is the it's the type of it's the concrete, oh. and so people think brutalist has to do with this this big angry, and it actually has to do with the fact that it's concrete. Yeah, and they are um, they're pretty fascinating, and the history um, that's the that's one of the parallel projects that I'm working on is these these monuments, um, and how they how a vernacular was created to how do you how do you memorialize something without how do you not take sides? Because the, they're memorializing people who, who died fighting fascism. They were uh, uh, commissioned by a person who ran a country who no longer exists. Yeah, but they're they're amazing. And there's a bunch of the pictures are on your website, actually. And yes. I, I looked on Wikipedia to try and read about them. And your photos are much better than the photos on Wikipedia. <laughs> So. Well, thank you. I that's I'm working on a project about them because there's they've sort of been uh, lost or neglected in 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 the revisionism that happens when a country ceases to exist um, and a country that was made up of previous countries. There's there's we like to we like to we seem to like to forget our past and and um, and by not talking about them the, the various. Uh, sculptors, the various monuments have taken on meaning, contemporary meaning, losing track of the historic meaning. And my hope with that project is to um, is to really look at them as the works of art that they are. Yes, they are political. Yes, they were created in some cases by dissident artists, but they tell a very interesting story about a place and about Tito's ideology about how do you how do you um, how do you draw together six different countries yeah. with their, six different tribes, basically, and and have them coexist? And how do you talk about that in a way that doesn't leave somebody out? And I think that's a very um, interesting lesson for today, because I think again and again and again we are faced with. Uh, shifting political borders and we're shift we're, we're we're dealing with you know these are not new issues and they are not old issues they 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 persist they're here now <laughs> they are absolutely here now and so by talking about them you know by talking about politics through the plate and by talking about politics through art i think we can include more people in a dialogue and come up with better solutions than just um you know buy more guns yeah so, so my last question here is: you're you're traveling. You decide, okay, I'm documenting this cheese. You probably have some preconceived notions 
um, after um, years of doing this now, what is something that you that came up that was completely unexpected? Oh, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I learned I mean, that question from This American Life, by the way. <laughs> a, there's um, uh, and there's a really good the long form podcast. They just they interviewed Krista Tippett, and she talks about questions like that. And if you haven't heard it, that's a fabulous, um, that's a fabulous podcast, but, um, uh, something that is unexpected. I, I don't think I expected, I don't think I expected the physical beauty. I think that's like, I expected Croatia to be pretty, but I don't think I expected to be as blown away by the land. Yeah. I also didn't expect to feel as comfortable and as at home there as I do. I briefly touched on the fact that my grandfather was Slovak and you know when he he lived in Philadelphia, he never lived in Slovakia or at that point it was Czechoslovakia. Um but he was born and raised in Pennsylvania. Uh, was a cop in Philly for nearly 40 years. But when he retired, he moved to northeastern Pennsylvania and had a farm and had sheep and grew plums and cherries and apples and made dandelion wine and canned and preserved and did all of these things seemingly uncharacteristic of his family. And then I'm in Bosnia, I'm in Serbia, I I mean, in the hinterlands of these places sitting having meals with these men who may they might as well have been my uncle and my grandfather had this this I don't know this intuitive understanding of his lineage having never lived there having no experience with the place but it was something so familiar that he gravitated to and learned and taught himself and there then I'm sitting at these tables drinking this wine, eating this food, having these conversations. And it was as if time sort of folded back on itself and I could experience my own family. Like we, we, we don't even know the village in, in Slovakia where my grandfather, um, where his family came from and under, and knowing now how municipalities and villages work, we would, we, that would, sort of be anathema to us in this country because every place has a postcode and and you can find any place basically on the map. And there you have a municipality and then you have these settlements around the the city and the the settlement may have a family name and it may only be just a handful of houses. It's not incorporated. It's just that's where that family has lived for a thousand years. And so when people move away from those places, the town ceased to exist and there are, there's no record. And so we have no record of where my grandfather's family was from and no hope of finding it. But here I am sitting in these places, not close, but not far, you know, from, from where my grandfather's people were from. And I felt like I could actually sort of in a weird way, sort of sit at the table of my ancestors and it, it absolutely floored me as to how familiar it felt, how as far from my Northwestern Connecticut upbringing as it could be, and yet it felt utterly familiar. And that if we make space for those kinds of experiences, I think they're they're there. 
and we're not as, I guess it comes back to this as we're not as different as we think we are from each other. How cool is that, huh? <laughs> I, it just, it's, it floors me when I, um, when I think about it and I try to describe it and I get so caught up in those moments that I, I often forget to make notes and make pictures. And then I walk away and think, did that really happen? Did I just like, am I imagining things? Did I, did I build that up to be more than it was? Or did I really just feel like I, I understand something generational and it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a privilege, I guess, to be, to be party to that stuff. Yeah, totally. You you are in the moment. (laughs) Exactly. And so if I can in any way convey that in my, my descriptions of place or my photographs of people or things that are happening that are, that may be so dramatically different from somebody's life here, but they can find some similarity, find some common thread that I've done my job. Yay. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was a pleasure and I'm, I'm happy to talk about this stuff and I'm, I, I love that it's finding, it's finding its way out into the world because I think it, this, my story or the story that I'm trying to tell, while it's very specific to a place and stuff i think it's a universal one and and i'm happy to happy to put it out there and encourage others to do the same i also like i know when you're traveling because we we talk we run into each other but i your instagram uh photos are great when you're traveling because uh, i'm just oh. like oh she's there oh, oh she's over there now so <laughs> yeah thank you that's uh, yeah everything i can be i'm sure you'll make notes of this but i can basically be found at babsperkins.com or Babs Perkins on all of the um, the major social media, Twitter and Facebook and um, and Instagram, of course. And and I am I have learned that by being open to putting that stuff out there and being open to what comes back ends up bringing bringing more good than it does frustration. And so, um, you know, I'm I encourage people to to get in touch and be in touch. And if they have ideas or things that they want to talk about, I I actually, um, I welcome the dialogue. So, yeah. So it's, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to keep, to build and keep a community is to keep connected. I think that's our, that's our greatest, that's our superpower of this time and age is staying connected. So. Cool. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This was really, um, really a treat. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for your ears. I appreciate you listening through. Uh, Again, if you would like to help Kelly and Eric, consider becoming a blood donor in your area. She has posted, Eric and Kelly have posted some updates about their ordeal on their site, which is rootsimple.com. And you can also, you're welcome to come over and check out Eric. I have a audio podcast called Garden Fork Radio, which is on iTunes. I have a YouTube channel called Garden Fork, and we have a site called GardenFork.tv as well. Again, thank you. Uh, It's been really kind of fun to do this. It's kind of funny how when you do your own thing, like a podcast or a blog, you just kind of do it. But then I was very excited to do the best thing I could for someone else's uh, podcast. It's kind of like being given an assignment. And um, I hope I did well. So you can let us know. I don't know. How do you contact Eric and Kelly? I guess through their site. I'm sorry. I didn't look that part up. (laughs) 
Uh, in the show notes here, Eric will have some information about contacting them. So thanks again for listening. If you consider going to iTunes and giving the Root Simple podcast uh, a five-star review, that would really help them. Uh, the reviews actually are a big deal in iTunes search engine. All right. Make it a great day. I'll see you later. Thank you.